Hey there, I'm Brittany, and thanks for tuning in to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you're not familiar with Cape Cod Church, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com to learn more. So, I love that piece of it, and of course, on Cape Cod, here's what we're hearing all the time. Like, you know, uh, Brian doesn't like me using the term fourth quarter, he says. He says, I don't want to be in the fourth quarter unless you're promising me overtime. So, we're going to call it halftime. But I meet lots of people who are just like, oh, we're thinking of getting rid of the place that we got in Weston, we got a place in West Falmouth, and we're just, transitions are happening. I might do this with my job, I might transition this. I'm hearing about it just in conversation in the lobby week after week after week, and I thought this would be a really interesting conversation to have. So I actually went out and asked a number of people who I knew a little bit of their transition stories if they would be part of a panel and just have the discussion with us. And you're going to hear it's pretty broad-ranging. So Matt, Matt down here is anchoring the younger generation for us. And really, uh, Matt's actually, oddly, has been with the same company for almost 20 years, right? Is that right? 20, 25. Yeah. 20, 25 years. A long time he's with Cognizant, and he works in machine learning, AI, and other stuff. He can explain that. But Matt and I were having lunch a few weeks ago, and we got into a really interesting conversation about what's happening with workers in the next generation. I found it so fascinating. I'm like, we have to add this to the panel discussion, and I'm really glad that he's here. Charles Galda is a good friend from Vision New England now. He's the president of Vision New England, and Charles and I have been working together at the Thrive Conference for a number of years. When I first met Charles, he was the CIO for GE Capital, and he was in the middle of this big transition, like, Or Teresa's or someone else's name. So we've been really 
really privileged, Teresa. Thank you for coming. Uh, Dale, you're going to enjoy hearing Dale's story. Dale is vice president of a pharmaceutical company out of California, I think, right? It's uh, Area Pharmaceutical. Um, he was previously with another one for 20? 30 years. 30 years. And he retired. Yay! <laughs> for nine months. <laughs> and I thought, Dale, you have to be a part of this conversation for everybody who's wondering, well, I like retirement. Well, Dale's your guy. And uh, you're going to get to hear a little bit of that story. And then Brian. Um, and Brian and I have been working on things of this sort. Uh, Brian Pierce is kind of leading these efforts, and he's going to be moderating the conversation tonight. And uh, Brian is a great point of contact if you want to carry on the conversations, if you want to connect with others. Brian is the guy for us for a little over a year now. We've been working on how we could further develop some of these ideas. Brian was a partner with Ernst Young for almost 40 years. Uh, Ernst Young has a great way of making people retire, they don't they? 60-year-old <laughs> mandatory retirement. So Brian, like, dude, the clock was ticking, and here it's coming in. Uh, Brian uh, headed up their Global Entrepreneurship Awards, which I've really found fascinating to talk with him about over the years, and he's going to be moderating the conversation. So that's me level setting, putting everything out there on the table. I'm going to get out of the way and let Brian take it over. So would you welcome all of our panelists as we get started tonight? Great. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for uh, introducing the panel and uh, giving a sense of who we have on the stage. And, and thanks to all of you for uh, coming out this evening on a uh, Sunday night in August. Uh, that's a challenge, and I'm delighted with the, uh, the attendance that we have here. Uh, but also uh, a little bit challenged, I think, on behalf of our whole panel that we have uh, a group that looks like we have a very, very broad cross-section in the room. Everyone from some younger people that have started businesses and are wondering how to grow those to uh, folks that uh, maybe are contemplating, uh, you know, how do I go about choosing whether it's the time to retire and everybody in between. So uh, certainly we have five questions that we're going to try and work our way through over the next 45 minutes or so as a panel. And then we'll open up the audience uh, Q&A to you, and, and you're welcome to uh, continue to push a little bit deeper in any of the uh, comments from our panelists. And, uh, and we really hope that you leave with some great insights into how you think about transitions as it relates to your business and professional life, and uh, how God wants to uh, impose uh, our thinking around, influence our thinking, I should say, around uh, that, and we really have an opportunity to determine what God's will is for our business and professional lives. So with that, I'm going to uh, kick off into our first question, and uh, for many of you who have been reading, and certainly all of us on the panel, uh, we're hearing a lot about what is being called a, a period in history called the Great Resignation. And there are uh, estimates that 25 to 40% of people that are in working roles right now are looking for and probably will make changes uh, in their careers over the foreseeable future here, over the next few months. And that's a, a huge number uh, compared to what we might see in, in normal times or what we might have experienced uh, prior to the COVID pandemic. So I might just start with Matt and. Uh, we'll work our way across the stage here, getting some perspective from our panelists on what do you think is driving this great resignation and this sort of massive upheaval in the roles that people have. So Matt, take it away. Sure. Just make sure it works. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest things, so I work at a company called Cognizant, 
we have over 100,000 lateral moves we're going to process this year because of this exact thing, right? So when you work in an environment, in a building, and then you get to work at home for a year plus, I always, for myself, I always felt that I worked at home. I always felt that if everybody knew the economy that you had when you worked at home, that people would just revolt because they knew that be, it would be something that's it's integratable into your life. And then to be pulled back out of that, it's really the, the, the world was already moving from work-life balance to work-life integration. And the folks that were in the office were edging towards that, but the pandemic just slammed them right into work-life integration. Every little packet of the day being, you know, work and life, work and life, life and work. Being able to edge work into your life and edge life into your work. You can, you can do some chores while you're actually working on a PowerPoint or you're doing some, some work a little bit here and there throughout your life, right? So work, that was a shift, work-life balance to work-life integration. And that really, you know, that really made it so that now where people coming back, I, I think I heard some companies are having, had, having issues where, you know, someone says, okay, we're gonna go back to the office and people just quit. Right? They're like, not only that, but then on top of it, there's this cognitive load that people are dealing with already, having to stay in a single location for most of the time. I would say that. Great. So Charles, I think when we were doing our prep call, you talked a little bit about this sort of nagging sense people have been having for a while that maybe the model isn't the way it was supposed to be. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while, and so I, can't, I don't want to blame the pandemic. Um, but I think it's, it's increased the thought process. So, because I was, I was thinking about it before, and I think there was a sense of it before. Um, so, I'll just to establish my credibility. I'm, I'm an economics major, love the free market, think the free market has delivered more for the world than any other system can. And I think maybe there's something wrong in it, too. And I think we've been struggling with it is, is this constant need for productivity and efficiency um, and make your numbers and um, deliver and uh, you're only as good as your last meeting. Where's my purpose? And Ben mentioned halftime earlier on. That's a great book in, in asking this question. What's my purpose? Is it about making a number? Is that why I'm here? Is it only about paying my mortgage? Is that why I'm here? And I think people start to struggle with some of those things. I think there's something broken in the model that we're trying to figure out anyway. And I don't have the answer. I just kind of sense there's that brokenness and I think it probably contributes to what we're seeing. Add any comments you might have on, you know, what's driving this change, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm a little distance from that now. Yeah. It's been about 10 years now that I've uh, um, been retired, but I was seeing uh, those kinds of things while I was uh, working at Jockey, for sure. And, uh, you know, the uh, pandemic has just um, changed, you know, the whole culture of uh, or the, the landscape at Jockey. And, um, you know, I had board meetings uh, to go to and I had, we had to skip them. Um, but, you know, the company just kept going there. Uh, the inter the uh, online business has been fantastic. Um, but um, 
you know, we, we could see a lot of those changes coming and we, you know, when I was there anyway, and I know it, it, it's been continued, um, finding ways to make employees um, really happy to be there and with, you know, showing them respect, getting them involved. Um, it, it's just, and, and just, you know, my door was basically open and uh, frequently I would have some people come in and, and uh, you know, the middle management and we'll, we'd talk things over. So things have changed on, um, on a lot of levels here and it's, it's exciting, but you wonder, you know, like, you know, where is it gonna go? And, Sometimes I'm, I worry about the haves and have-nots um, because where, you know, industry's going and everything's going, I think as these guys have mentioned, um, it's, it's a brave new world. You know? Great. Teresa, when you were at TD most recently, you had a big group working with you and obviously one of the top five banks in Canada and around the world. So what do you see? Yeah, I think it's an important question. Thanks, Brian. Uh, first of all, uh, we need to talk about women in the workforce um, because the other trend, in addition to the big resignation, is women leaving the workforce in droves. And I saw that myself. I had a team of 800 people, and I would have women come up to me all the time and talk to me about, you don't understand, I'm having to be on video conference with you, and at the same time, I have a three-year-old or a four-year-old or I have a child going from school because remember when all the schools were closed down and I'm having to take care of them. I have a niece who is a special education teacher, and one of the stories she told me was she has to make eye contact on video at all times. As she looks away, her client would have some difficulties, and yet she has two young children, and she called my sister and just started burst into tears, because she's also a makeup artist, because guess what the two kids were doing while she was on a Zoom call? <laughs> right, very expensive makeup and coloring the walls, etc. Now you multiply that times, you know, people who don't have the resources to help them, and so women, really need support. When I was working at TD, one of the things I told my team was, here's the order. Family first, your job second. And I had people calling me and crying and saying, do you really need that? I said, yes, we have goals we have to meet, so that may mean you have to lock back on at 8 o'clock at night or work on a Saturday, but you have to work that around. I think the other issue is around mental health, uh, which we don't talk about enough. There's a stigma associated with it, but anxiety and depression is very real. People are experiencing it in, in just huge numbers as a result of COVID. We talked about isolation at home, um, and that's very, very real. And then finally, I would say, this is, is culture. You know, culture, you've heard the thing, culture eats strategy for lunch, and I think that's really true. And so there are people who are leaving the workforce or changing jobs, not just for money, but because they're saying, I want to be treated with respect. I want to be able to think about work-life balance and what that means. And you, know, you heard Ben talk a little bit about my story, and I've experienced all the things that I just Thanks, Teresa. Dale, comments? Yeah, I can just um, comment from the organization I work for. I went to work for a startup company when I came back to work. A lot of young people, and what we've seen during the pandemic is that it's a great time to look for a job. Um, and when we put the word on the street that, okay, October 1st, this coming October, everybody has to be back in the office, we've had a number of people leave because um, they want to work from home. Um, and there are some positions that, quite honestly, are perfectly fine from home. But there are a lot of positions in the organization where you have to be with people to interact with them, to build trust, and to get things done. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting time because the young people have 
a lot of options that they didn't have in the past. And I think it, we're going to continue to see it. So I was born in Canada a number of years ago. And uh, our Canadian Prime Minister, Justin uh, Trudeau, actually uh, made a statement at uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos a few years ago, not that many years ago, and he said, the pace of change has never been faster and it will never be this slow again. Now, if you just think about that for a moment, the pace of change has never been faster and it will never be this slow again. That's a big statement to, to make, but yet I think it's got a lot of truth in it. And, you know, we've heard a lot about STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math, and yes, that's very important, and many of us on here would have had, you know, people that were steeped in STEM education working with us or for us, but I think what we're seeing now is increasingly employers are also looking for employees that have this enhanced ability to be creative, to be collaborative, to use their imagination to solve problems, because frankly, as Matt and others will tell you, you know, we can get machines and artificial intelligence to do a lot of the old repetitive tasks. So uh, the work of work, world of work is changing. And I guess I just, you know, love the panel and I'm not going to go up and down the line every time, but just, you know, comment a little bit on how is the work of world changing and how do you maybe see that influencing the people in this room as they're thinking about, you know, opportunities that may be presented to them or thinking about a pivot in their career. So anybody that wants to take it, otherwise maybe I'll have Matt lead us off on that. But oh, okay. <laughs> you're, you're putting everybody out of work, so you need this. Wow. That was tough. Okay. That's betting if you don't this. <laughs> so yeah, I mean so I mean, what we're seeing is, you know, you go back to the out of work thing. So, I mean, you can take a utopian or a dystopian view, right? I mean, people take the utopian view of everything's going to be done for us and we will just be the most creative uh, group of people in the world. Uh, you can take the dystopian view and say that, you know, there'll be nothing for us to do and what, how will we judge it? How will we even think about our self-work, right? But in reality, it's not going to be either of those. It's going to be somewhere in between, right? Um, you know, there's definitely a, a big shift from being uh, in a fixed mindset to being in a growth mindset. A fixed mindset says, I come in, I do this job at this place, and then I go home, and that's what I do, right? That, that's, that's a fixed. What with the what I've seen is that the, the, the world is moving towards more of a growth mindset. And there's, a, there's a book called Mindset by, um, uh, I can't remember the author's name, uh, Dweck, Dweck. But there's a, there's a book called Mindset and it talks about the shift from uh, this fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And, and the growth mindset is, you know what, every day I am going to take my, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I do well, and then I'm going to find an adjacency, and multiple adjacencies, and explore those adjacencies. And then I'm going to find one of those I really like, and then I'm gonna transition to that adjacency. And then I'm gonna do the same thing over my entire life, so I'm actually continually learning my entire life in new and new and new and new, right? And I think previously in our, in, in the way, the way the world worked, 
was we thought I produced this and thousands of this and thus my worth is based on large numbers of what I can do. And, and now it's more transitioned to some form of creativity and, and such, right? There will always be, uh, you know, the, the bulk work. Um, you know, there will be automation that will actually allow that bulk work to be done. But if you think of a, of a, a generation where if, if someone is going to act, have to act like a robot, why would you want to have you know, your entire life be doing a repetitive task over and over again, right? So it does free us up. There's, this, there's these four mindsets, right? So you know, there's, there's an investor mindset. How can we, not only, not the, just the funding part, but more about how, where's the data about it, uh, count, uh, more of a connector mindset. So there's actually been a shift to actually valuing human connection. And there's been a lot more, um, there's been a lot more focus on things called design thinking, where they take and they say, you know what, how can we make this experience the best for a human? Not for industry, but for, for a human, right? Someone's going to use this product. Someone is going to, well, log into this website. Someone has a need, and there's been a, there's been a shift to, problems, to find problem solvers to, find, to have problem finders, right? Explorers, the explorer mindset. So there, there's, there's this, this idea of going out, finding problems, and then yes, that we've always had problem solvers, but it's rare now, and it's now people are trying to get more of these problem finders. Um, and then, you know, there's always the producer mindset, and you know, we've a lot of our uh, a lot of our uh, world has been about producing, uh, but that's why they call. I don't know if you. I don't think we've reached it, but. That, there was, this is being called also the fourth industrial revolution, where we kind of transition from the, uh, the I do bulk work to I do creative work. And it's created this Gen C class, this creative class. Um, and, and so you'll see more and more creative work being, um, being really lifted up versus more of that bulk worker. Back in the, um, you know, back in the day, you just and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not against that. I think I think it's just the focus has shifted, and that's where the center of gravity is right now. Thank you, Matt. Dale, what you know, in your new role at Aerie, not so new, I guess, you've been there a few years. But what are the kinds of people that you're looking for in Aerie, and you know, what does it take to succeed in, you know, a very innovative business like that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, in a small organization that's just starting, you need someone who's very willing to do not only their job, but anything else that's asked of them. Because you're not working for a large organization where there are a lot of resources, where typically you can get anything you want done. Uh, I've worked in that environment, but when we're hiring people, we're looking for people who are hungry and are willing to take on not only their role, but share the responsibilities for other parts of the organization that might need help until we get to a point where we can hire people to do that. So it's a very different hire when you're looking at going to a small company that's starting up 
Um, I would just say that if you are going to an organization like that, is just be ready to do a lot of work. Um, there can be some great rewards by, you learn a lot more versus just doing the, you know, your specific job. Um, but that's really what we look for. So it's interesting, Matt mentioned sort of continuous learning and moving into it, you know, adjacencies as being something that the employee is interested in doing, but you're also saying the, the employer or the organization is looking for utility players that can take on these roles. Yeah. Teresa, what did you see in, in the bank? Yeah, you know, I think we used a term uh, called reskilling. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's a big topic about that all And I think it is about lifelong learning. You know, it's not about having to leave your career, but how do you keep up with everything that is going on? AI, blockchain, et cetera, and how that's going to transform your business. I don't think there's any business anywhere that is not in the middle of a digital revolution or the fourth industrial revolution. And so how do you keep up with that? And in my last company, it was uh, embarrassing a bit for our board and our CEO and executives because they weren't on TikTok. They weren't, they didn't have Facebook accounts. For security reasons, they, they couldn't have it. Yet, when I got there, 5% of our sales were being driven through social channels. And when I left, 55% of our sales. Because the marketing team's job was to drive revenue through those channels. And so I had to educate our board. We created a digital IQ uh, with Deloitte to really retrain the entire company on this fourth industrial revolution. And everyone had to be comfortable enough in their own skin to say even the CEO had to go through this retraining program. So I think it is about you know, constantly reskilling yourself. It's interesting, and I think that's what's driving a lot of the you know people looking for new opportunities, new new roles. I want to shift gears a little bit to talking about the R word, uh, which is retirement. And uh, you know, some of you in this room maybe are retired, some are maybe <coughs> contemplating retirement, uh, and we've got an interesting mix of people on the panel here. And uh, I know when. I was planning retirement, as Ben mentioned. Uh, my job was a little bit easy in that when I signed the partnership agreement with uh, you know, EY, it said, uh, as a partner, you will retire at uh, age 60. So I kind of had a date certain that was time for my next chapter, not my fourth quarter, Ben, but my next chapter. Uh, and so that was easy. But um, you know, I, I think part of what I realized going through that process personally was that, first of all, everyone was different. Uh, they had a event for retiring partners down at the castle on the river in, uh, in New York. And uh, you know, one of my partners in Long Island was going to become a uh, firefighter in Long Island and uh, was already enrolled in the training for that. And you know, some people were gonna play golf seven days a week and other people were going to uh, you know, get another job. And, and it was just very interesting to kind of listen to everybody's intentions and plans and recognize that everybody's okay and that's different uh, and that's acceptable. Uh, and so that was interesting. You know, the other exercise that I think we went through and then I'm gonna throw it open to the panel here was saying, okay, you have a 24 hour day. We all have 24 hours in the day as much as we'd like to have more than that sometimes. So, you know, think about how you spend your work day today in those 24 hour days and whatever number of days a week you work. And what does that look like, you know, in retirement to you? How do you want to spend those 24 hours a day uh, as you retire? And again, everyone is different and, uh, and that's okay. So let me throw it out to our panel and maybe I can start with Ed this time, please, uh, because, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your story and what have sure. you done? 
First, uh, I'm, I'm, I wish I had uh, asked this question before, but um, are you wearing jockey? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you. But, uh, I, I like that response, it's very positive. So I mentioned that um, I, I retired. <laughs> I want to know what's going on over there. <laughs> you started. Yeah, I know, I did. <laughs> I did. Um, but as I mentioned, I, I retired 10 years ago. And um, I was 18 years in the president's role. And uh, there was, when, when I retired, and I was helping the, the new person come in, um, I was so tired, so tired after those 18 years. And I'm, I'm someone who takes decisions very personally, and I, I shouldn't, but it weighs upon me. And during that period, I had to do some difficult things. Um, uh, sometimes we had to um, take a plant, and, and you know it wasn't uh, effective anymore. And I'd have to go over there, and I'd have to talk to people and tell them. And you know, all those things started weighing on me. And um, I was I was really feeling really tired. And um, as I mentioned, I, I got the uh, I, I helped the new the new guy come take my position. Um, and when I when I um, when I got um, back home, you know, I would. I would, uh, I'm sorry, it's a little emotional, but um, I was under, you know, we were under a lot of pressure. Uh, we, we wanted to move into, uh, we wanted to move here. Um, we had to, we had to take, take our home and um, completely um, redo it so that we could get it sold. Just a whole bunch of things, but the worst thing, one week after, um, uh, I retired. Uh, my son got broken pneumonia, and that was Alex. And we almost lost him. He was uh, he was in, in a, a terrific hospital. But um, and I'm telling you this story for for a reason because it changed the way I looked at things. Um, and uh, Penny was there, my wife, and, and all of our. I had my kids flown in. And his oxygen level was down in the low 80s, and um, we and the doctors left. You know, they tried everything and they left, and it was dark, and we were there alone. And it was um, we we knew he was on the verge of death, and so we did a semicircle around the, his bed, and we prayed not, uh, and and said the 91st Psalm. And uh, we're all around there. We're just we're just praying for him. And then I finished the prayer, and I looked at him, and his eyes looked like that, and they were all white, no redness at all. And we couldn't. We couldn't and the oxygen level went up like six points. And the doctor, and then they came in and they took him downstairs. And we're trying to figure it out. And my wife and I. We're each went separate places and we said, you know, Lord, um, if you want to take them, he's yours, but we, we, we love this kid. And so 
like 50 minutes later, the, uh, the elevator opened, and he what the, the nurse runs at us and says, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. He's, his oxygen level went up 40%. And I said, you know what, he's, he's going to be healed. The point being that Alex, our Donsonville son, changed the way totally what my, my retirement was going to be. It was going to be devoted to my family. And, and we went through a lot of stuff, including, uh, you know, when we moved here, we three um, nor'easters in one month at March. So I thought Wisconsin was uh, tough. Anyway, I just wanted to make that point. There's a lot more to it than, you know, just the numbers and stuff like that. And I think, uh, you know, as a society, we need to, um, we need to have people be expand, you know, their learnings more expand, expansive. Um, and it's not only just STEM. STEM's very important, but we have to learn how to be people. And that's, that's human, the humanities, it's music, all those kinds of things. Or else, uh, we're just going to be machines. So that's, that's one of my concerns. Sorry. No, yeah, that was great. Thank you. Charles, uh, maybe tell a little bit of your story, leaving GE and how God worked and led you to uh, Vision New England. Yeah, ben, ben wasn't joking about the salary cut. Uh, <laughs> and I wish he'd have told me about it beforehand. But, but no, I, I knew what I was getting into. I just had, uh, I'll try and tell it as quickly as I can, but I just had this compelling sense. And I am a numbers guy, and I'm a data guy, and I'm a logic guy. I, don't, I haven't done much on compelling sense other than fall in love with my wife, right? That was it. That was the last compelling sense I ever had in my life until this, that I was supposed to leave the corporate world, and I was supposed to do something, and I didn't know what. And so, we, so I quit my job. Um, I told them I was going to leave, uh, and, that, and I'm on the – who was saying it before that people are quitting their jobs without having a job? Uh, I always would tell my kids, you know who do, does that? Stupid people do that. You don't quit your job until you have your next job, and I'm doing it. And we were okay with it. And we moved not knowing what I was going to do. And we just, all these things that is not we're spiritual giants, but it was God making us okay with stuff that's not natural to us at all. And even when I would say to my wife, are we out of our minds? She would say, and she's not this way normally either. It just seems right. And so, so I, there was just this compelling sense that God was calling us to do something else. It's not retirement, um, but it was a new phase of life for us. Uh, doing something very different, full-time vocational ministry, uh, but it was very much God-directed. I had a friend who said, uh, if you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do next, pray about it. If God doesn't tell you, just do what you want, right? But if he tells you, do what he tells you. And, and I had a friend, because I was trying to figure this out for a long time, I had a friend I talked to, and he had left, I think Deloitte, he was an early career partner, uh, had four young kids, had to pay for college, didn't have that money set aside, did, was taking a job as an executive pastor in a church that he'd helped plant as a layperson years before. And so he was going through the same thing. And people, he said, people would always ask me, were you scared? And he said, I was, but not as much as I would have been if I knew God wanted me to do this, and I wasn't. And so it really is very much not so much what you want to do, but what is it God is wanting you to do? And he may be saying, hey, fields open, do what you want. And he may be saying, no, I want this very specific thing for you. 
Charles, that's great. I think on the uh, prep call, you had some really additional practical thinking that uh, you shared with the group then that I wonder would be helpful here. One of the things you said that I wrote down because I thought it was very pertinent was, if you're doing this to get away from the crazy pace, is it the job or is it you that's really driving the crazy pace? And I. I must yeah. admit, that made me stop and think for a I long time. I have all time. kinds of brilliant insights, Brian. I don't always remember them, but I have all kinds of brilliant <laughs> But no, I, th I think that's right. So, so I, I made this change because I believe God wanted me to do this. Um, very, very deeply believe that and still do. Uh, but I did think, you know, now that I'm getting paid a lot less and our kids are out of the house, right, I'm, going, you know, I, I'm not going to need to work the hours I work now. Um, and I'll have more downtime. My wife and I can go to lunch periodically, or I'll take a little, maybe take an afternoon off here and stuff like that. And I'm, I met the enemy and it's me, right? The problem was not the GE demanded this for me. It's what I do, and I don't know how to do it any differently. And so I'm doing the exact same thing in Vision New England, just because I, I don't know, even if I want to do it differently, I don't know how to. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And, and you also... I thought, you know, said the importance of having your spouse being 100% on board and, uh, you know, really praying about all of these things. And, and yeah, I, I spent a year and a half in prayer. Yeah. Um, you know, every time I could get time, right, I'd spend hours on the weekend just sitting there, kind of in and out of meditating and prayer and thinking. And, um, but I, and I think that was really helpful in the process I'm not, because I'm, I don't do things based on a feeling. I don't write, I got a problem with that. Yeah. Uh, and it just shows God has a sense of humor. But that time in prayer and talking to other people yeah. um, and getting validation from them that this is right, uh, because not everybody's wired up to do everything. Right? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really important point. Tracy, you might comment on this as well. But I, I think the opportunity to talk to other people, you know, pray, seek God's will, but also seek the the counsel and the validation from other people on our thinking. I, I know that's been important to me, and Trace, I know you've, you've been involved in that too. Yeah, for sure. So I think Ben mentioned that, you know, I left my, I was with uh, Citizens here in Boston for 18 years, and then I was with TD in Canada for eight. So it was a big deal for my husband to leave his job as a teacher and follow me in Canada, and uh, you know, we didn't know a soul there. I had to have somebody approve me to get a credit card and a license and start all over again, and came back. But I trusted God. I remember really clearly as a bell when God said, this time I want you to go to Canada, because they came after me twice. Um, so I was very much at peace. And then coming home recently after, you know, I, I teased Ben, and I, I'm sure I had the longest commute of anybody here at church, uh, going back and forth to Canada once a week. And so I'd leave like on Sunday and come back on Thursday. Um, and so after COVID, I decided, you know, God was really prompting me to make a change. And so I, an opportunity came up locally, and I took the job. And I prayed about it, and I went and I did the job. It was the hardest, most awful job I've ever done, and I knew within five minutes it was a bad decision. Um, and culture was really wrong for me, I mean, just from the get-go. And so I prayed about it and thought about it and really just was wrestling with God. I'm like, I thought I asked you about this, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so anyway, at the end, I had with folks in this room just who supported me through this and I decided to leave after 90 days. Um, and I'm fortunate enough that I you know, had the resources to be able to do that. But it was very traumatic because I had my, I'm an A-type person, like I'm going from here to here. I gave it a lot of thought uh, and it just didn't work out. So to your point, Brian, sometimes you can pray and you can spend a lot of time 
perfection. But even then, I remember Ben was kind enough to have lunch with me and said, you know, God's still in the middle of all of this. And he had given a, 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 um, a speech about how, you know, painting to the corner and that you have to stop and that God can kind of take it from there. And also, I remember distinctly, I journal a lot, and I wrote this one down talking about maybe you're in the wrong place and that God wants to make a change. You're blocking God from what he wants you to do next. And that really was profound for me. And so I do blame Ben that I quit my job and lost faith. Very clearly his fault. <laughs> so you, you do have to, and I will tell you, I've been off for two months, and um, you know, you're similar to your time in prayer. My screen porch has been in my sanctuary. I'm fortunate enough to live on a saltwater estuary. I mean, you are not checking your email, and your phone is not ringing constantly. And you can have two and a half hours of dedicated time to listen to the Lord, he speaks to you so clearly on so many topics. As, like, I feel like I'm getting a master's degree in my relationship with the Lord over the last two months. And you know, Ben kept encouraging me, saying, you know, just, it's going to come to you. And just this last week, I have three different job opportunities I'm considering. Uh, very different than what I've done in the past, consulting, and you know, very different salaries than what I've made in the past. But even that, I would even consider some of these things if God had dealt with me on, uh, I'll just be transparent, lots of things. You know, whose money is it? Uh, are you a steward? Do you really think that you create all these opportunities in your life or not? Um, or I was kind enough to have a great conversation with me. So even that, the networking conversations that I've had with many people to talk about their faith and what they went through in their life, um, it's been terrific. So I think seeking out a lot of advice, but the most important one is being on your knees with the Lord and asking what you want you to do. Absolutely. Dale, I want to just go to you last on this question because your journey has been a little bit different too. I mean, you retired from Alcon and then decided you weren't finished building yet. Yeah, so I spent my entire career at Alcon. I was there for 30 years and I was off for just under a year. And you know, everybody thinks, I can't wait till I retire. Um, I did not like it. I wanted to get, I just, I missed work. I missed the people I worked with. I missed the industry I was in. I missed what I did. So I jumped back in. I commute to Los Angeles now. So I don't know where in Canada you're going, but it's a long way. You win. But similar to them, I mean, I didn't think I would feel uneasy and unhappy after working so long and being retired. And like many of them, you pray about it. And sure enough, you know, doors opened from folks that I knew in the industry, and I was able to join a company four years ago, and I have no intentions of leaving it. So, for me, it's be careful what you wish for, because maybe retirement isn't all that it was cracked up to be, for me at least. Um, so it's been a lot of fun going back into the industry and doing what I love to do. So I think, you know, a few points just to summarize this last question. I think one is, as I said earlier, everyone is different and that's the way God made us and, and that's okay. And so, you know, I think this has been a real learning for probably everyone on the panel that has gone through that particular type of transition is, you know, don't look around and say, well, someone else is doing this, I should be doing that and I'm not, there must be something wrong with me. I think everyone is, is very different and, and uh, we have to respect that. But on the other hand, you know, we don't want to go into this without prayer and without a clear sense of God's will. 
And I think the other thing that is beautiful about the Cape Cod Church community here is the willingness of people to uh, invest their time to share, to make themselves available to help you through uh, by sharing their experiences. And that's really what we're trying to do with faith and work at Cape Cod Church is make this community more accessible so that we don't have to figure this out uh, entirely on our own. Obviously, we, we do it with God's will and with prayer, but we need the uh, support of other people as well. So on a, uh, on a very positive note, uh, I thought I would ask, what's the best thing about retirement? And, and Ed, uh, let me just sort of turn it over to you to, to start with you. And then we're going to finish up the evening coming back a little bit to people that are in mid-career. So if you're you know, less than 60, don't feel bad. Obviously, it's uh, an opportunity to uh, spend more time with your, your family. And that's, that's been a, a blessing. I really wasn't looking for work um, after retirement. Uh, I was looking for meaning um, and, um, you know, exploring some of the other things that, that are meaningful for me. Um, I do poetry now. I've, I've, I've written a bunch of poetry, which I really love. I love the arts, play classical piano. Um, it, this gave me a chance to do those things gave me a chance to, again, spend time, time with my family and my kids. Um, I have to admit that um, I haven't made my total peace with that. You know, I'm still, I think God's really working on me um, because I, um, all these things are great, but you know, you bring the garbage from one side to the other, right? And, uh, and the good things and the bad things, they don't leave the minute you say that you're going to, you know, retire. Uh, there's a whole different set of things and, and the things that have, you know, bothered you, you know, can't continue. So that's where, you know, these comment, the comments uh, that have just been made about prayer is absolutely essential. I have, I'm doing better, but I'm, I'm still not totally reconciled and, you know, I guess, one thing I'll say that um, when I was going through all those things as I was retiring, um, I made a mistake afterwards, and I don't know if I had a, had an opportunity to, to obviate that, but um, um, I really needed, made, with, with my wife, probably three, six months of doing nothing. And that would have been good because I still get tired and feel like I need a break and not necessarily getting it uh, just because, uh, you know, and Alex um, demands a lot. And so I think I would have been better off, you know, if I could have taken like time off, I would have been able to see more clearly. And uh, I think um, it just would have been better for my well-being. Some good insight. Dale, what about you uh, on, on this? What, what's the best part of retirement? Even though you went back to work, it's probably a little bit different feel than when you were at Alcon. Uh, the best part of retirement was going back to work. <laughs> um, no, I mean, my, my kids are out of the house, so you know, I obviously got to spend time at home. And you, know, you can only, only do so much fishing and golfing and whatever you want to do um, when deep down, you know, you really had a calling to do what you want to enjoy. But so for me, it's kind of a hard question to answer just because it wasn't a good spot for me. But you did have a big fish recently. Yes. 
<laughs> with gentlemen in the audience. <laughs> Excellent. Any other comments from our panel on that question before we kind of turn our minds back to mid-career? Matt. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say that I mean, there isn't a month or a week that goes by that I don't think about that word retirement. And I, I think, see, I, I'm, I'm with these gentlemen and, and folks. It's just right now, mid-career, doing artificial intelligence, all that, it's, it's all great. At some point, we all know it's going to surpass it. Right, and at some point, our value will be found in other things. And I don't necessarily want to retire because I know that drop off that he was he was talking about, Dan was talking about, is is definitely there. Um, so it's it's definitely one of those things where you know you can go through life, and and I think most people today are actually. Starting, you know, with the pace of change, they see that drop off actually happening on a continual basis, and they're catching up to that, trying to go ahead and, and stay ahead of it. And I mean, the whole like from an executive perspective, the word reverse mentoring come, comes to mind, right? Where they're actually having to go out to the younger generation, like she was talking about. You had to go to the younger generation to actually get up to speed on what's happening now. And that, that loop is still happening on a regular basis. So I, mean, I think as a society, we're all kind of hitting that drop off. But personally, I do, I do have that, that regular, ongoing, where am I going? Because I know, I'll put it this way. If we have 40 years from, let's say, 25 to 65 for, for a career, right? Before 25, you might be trying to get into a company or whatever. But 25 to, four, 25 to 65 is basically four years, right? In those 40 years, if you're going to go for um, you know, any moving, movement up or anything, you, at most you're gonna get possibly every two years you have to make a decision, are you gonna get promoted or are you gonna go somewhere else? That means you only have 20 choices out of your entire career. And then after you hit that retirement, you may have 20 more years, that's maybe 10 years, 10 more choices that you're gonna do something for two years. So since you're only going to have 20 choices, it's one of those things where you really understand, like, I have seven choices left. I only have seven choices left until I'm retired. And then hopefully ten more choices after that, right? So with that kind of time scale, it kind of brings it down to, you know, how close is it? Oh, you're 20 years away. I'm seven choices away. So I think that's really Can I just yeah, on, on that word uh, mentoring or reverse mentoring? Um, I, I forgot to mention that um, I, I also mentor some young, young uh, men, and uh, it's truly um, wonderful to do that. So I would encourage any of you um, to um, do that. Uh, it's, it's, one-on-one -on -one 
and you get to build a, a great relationship with these kids, and it means a lot. Um, and you know, helping them get a new job or you know, getting out of college, and um, uh, I've gotten a lot of meaning out of that. And I think you know, we've got to give something back when we get to my advanced age. Uh, and it's just something that I think um, I would I would recommend. And actually, at, at Jockey, we used to everyone um, participated in a, uh, a mentoring program in the community, and uh, it made it, it made a difference. So I would encourage people to do that. So I, I think this is great. And how many people on the panel have benefited from a mentor, at least one mentor in their career? Yeah, I mean everybody. What about in the audience? Can you point to mentors in your career? So I think, you know, as Ed says, I mean, this is such a wonderful opportunity to give back. There's lots of ways to do it. Can, can I but, make a theological point on this retirement? Of course you can. You, you can't uh -oh. push back on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I didn't technically retire because, as you can tell, I'm far too young. Um, the, uh, but I, I think. <laughs> There's, I think there's an important point around our theology of work that we should, we need to think about here because there's not really a, I understand when we talk about retirement, we're using shorthand for you know, cultural context of what, of what we do in, the, in our world. Um, but we're all in ministry, right? Our theology of work is God gives us work to do to bless other people, right? Think about what would happen in the last year and a half if truck drivers decide to stop blessing us. Or if grocery workers decide to start blessing us, restaurant workers decide to start blessing us, it gets ugly fast, mm -hmm. right? God gives us this work. Now, if you're in the world, you're, you're working for a paycheck and all of that. But for us, it's, no, I'm, I'm here to bless those people in the work I do. And that's true of everything that we do here and everything that you all do there. And there's no point in our life at which God says, you don't have to do that anymore, right? It's, it's really just a question about, he's gonna, you're going to shift what you're doing. Right? And so, so, so I was doing ministry before I left the corporate world. I'm doing ministry today, today too. It just changed. Yeah. And when I eventually stopped getting paid by Vision New England, right, and now I'm drawing a pension paycheck, right, I still have an obligation to be doing ministry, whether that's mentoring 10 guys, caring for my family, or, or, or the next job I do. Right? That's, we're still supposed to be a ministry our whole lives. Yeah, that's a great point, that's Charles. Thanks for bringing that up because there really is no mention of retirement in the Bible. That's right. <laughs> I've been using it all along. At least not the New Testament. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I think the other point that you made, which I, I meant to comment on at the beginning, is that you know we've been talking a lot about working from home and uh, you know the changes there and you know. Some of us in the room have, you know, so-called old-school white-collar jobs that enable us to have that flexibility. But as you rightly point out, Charles, if you're a truck driver, a restaurant worker, a first responder, a healthcare worker, it's really hard to, uh, you know, care for patients remotely on some of this stuff. And it's hard to make drugs remotely, uh, you know, to look after people. So, you know, not everybody is in the same boat. And, and I sure appreciate the people that, uh, you know, continue to uh, come to work every day in the midst of the pandemic to do the kind of jobs that uh, you know, can't be done any other way in, uh, in many cases. So the final question that I wanted to do, and then we're going to open it up to you, and I, I have a strong feeling we got lots of questions in a room of, uh, of this size and composition, but I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about 
the fact that all of us go through, you know, a variety of roles, whether it's uh, 20 rolls or, you know, sort of a cheesecake factory menu like Matt was describing over here, or whether uh, it's, you know, a fewer number of roles, but we all go through those different roles, uh, those different companies that we might move to, pivots in our responsibilities and so on over the course of our career. So for those of us that are sort of in mid-career or still working and so on, I thought it might be interesting to just hear from the panel on, you know, how have they evaluated those opportunities, obviously bathed them in prayer, but how have they evaluated those opportunities and, and uh, get some insights that might be helpful to each of you as you're contemplating those on its own. So, uh, Dale, maybe I can start with you and we'll go backwards sure. across the room here. Yeah, so a big trigger for me is when I'm in a role and I get comfortable in it, it's time for me to do something else. And I was always most productive when I look back, when I went into a position where I didn't have all the skills I needed, and it just made me hyper, hyper focused on trying to get better. So my one recommendation to myself and to my kids is don't be afraid to take chances on roles that maybe they're not perfect for you, but go for it. There's people around you that'll help you, and that's how I thrived as I looked at any role that I was going to possibly go to. Um, that's it. Great. Thank you. Dale? Teresa? Yeah, I'll just reference what uh, we had gone through with the, uh, the, the young uh, the panel that we had at Ben and with youth. And we asked them, what's successful like? We asked everyone to write that down. And the traditional view of that had two uh, slices to the pie. And it was you know, money and sort of title of position. But today, that definition is very different, and it is work-life balance, it is culture, it is purpose. Am I working for a purpose-driven company? Do I feel like my boss has my back? You've all heard that people join companies and quick managers. You know, do I feel like I am known and my lifelong learning? Uh, and in this world where reskilling is going on, is someone going to invest in me? Am I growing? So I think the definition of success has really changed a lot. And so for me, you know, when, as you go up and up in your career, you know, it takes a lot of courage uh, to sort of say, this is not the right role for me, and I'm out of here, which is what I did. It, but you have to have real clarity and purpose of what matters to you. Culture is everything to me. How you treat your employees is everything to me. How I'm being asked to treat my colleagues is everything to me. And so if there's a violation, someone said today you should get more and more senior, even if there's a any sliver of difference between the company and yourself, it gets magnified by like 500 as you have gone through your career because you just have to have all those experiences. You can spot it and say, oh no, 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 that is not how I operate. This is how I operate and I made a mistake and I'm moving on. And that's why I made the change that I did. So in this next round, I'm really, first of all, relying on God to say, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do it part-time, full-time? Where do you want me to do it? I'm trying to take money out of the equation. I concur with the culture of being everything. Um, that was something that uh, I was very, very uh, interested in with. I wanted to make sure that uh, with um, all the employees there that uh, we treated people very well in every instance. 
and um, that we would tell the truth. And um, it was just, there was, there was no room for not doing that. And the culture really did develop. It developed extremely well. And um, people had each other's backs. Um, we were able to accomplish things that I don't think we would have been able to do without the, the you know, camaraderie we had and, and respect for each other. Um, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've made a lot of, a lot of mistakes in, in, in my life, uh, but, um, you know, you have to, you have to say, put it behind you and just move forward. And as, as a retiree, I hate to use that name, I know it's, it's an athlete now, but, uh, you know, I feel like God is, is trying to teach me something that I, I'm still don't, I still don't have my hands around. Uh, and there's just something, something I'm not giving up or whatever. It's funny, but uh, I'm hoping that that will become clear, clear. But uh, that's funny. Ed, that's that's great. I'm curious, as president of a company, and you know, getting the right people on. You know, so the the old saying goes, the right people yeah, on the right yeah. seats on the bus. How did you think about that, and how did you counsel your employees well, to get in the right roles? I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. that. That was absolutely essential. Getting the right people in the right roles. And I, when we had an opening, uh, we, we, we went through it very, very carefully with our staff. I had everyone, I had 10 direct reports, and uh, they all interviewed them multiple times. Um, we did, um, we had them, there was some testing involved too, but we wanted to make sure that that person fit our culture. If they didn't, then uh, we would, if we, even if it was shortly thereafter, we would have to uh, jettison that person. Um, it didn't happen very often because, I, you know, I hate doing that. So <laughs> it's another, Another reason why you know we just were very very careful doing that because um, a, a you know a bad apple can do a lot of damage in a company, right? And so um, that was one of, one of I considered that my most important role in the company is getting the right team so that we could in the various areas we had that we could we could maximize our potential and our abilities in those areas. Great, thank you. Charles, as you kind of progressed through GE, you had a lot of different roles, and, or a number of different roles anyway, and how did you evaluate, you know, whether or not each new progressive role was right for you at the time? Yeah, I don't think I, don't think I did very smartly, um, but I, I finally picked up the trend after a while. There was always the scope of responsibility money questions, always, it had, it had to be there. That was kind of threshold stuff for sure. Um, what I didn't realize for a long time is I needed to figure out why I liked the things I did. And, I, and what, it's not obvious. If you look at my career and you just look at, well, there's a finance guy, but then he's a technology guy, then he does these other jobs in technology, then he does, and, and none of them fit, and then he's an M&A guy, and it, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, until I finally figured out, well, what I really like is solving problems. So when they would tee up a job to me that was supposed to be a better job at times, I'd be like, eh. Right? But when they teed up a problem to me, 
right, that got me going right away. Because I'd already be working on how I could solve it, and so that would get me fired up. And what I finally figured out is that was really how I picked. I didn't know that's why I was picking it, but that's why I was picking it, is they teed up a good problem statement. The good news was there was no shortage of problems. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then it becomes a question of, now, now what's that for you? I tell my kids who are in their 20s, why do you like what you like? Because it took me decades to figure out why I liked what I liked. If you know that early, it's going to make it a lot easier to figure that out. Great, great insight. Matt, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely uh, basically agree with that. I think, <clears throat> I think I had to find that out for myself as well. I had to go ahead and, and really understand what made me tick from that perspective. I think I, I, would, I would say, you know, if it was complex enough, if I didn't feel like I was just taking a job where I was going to pay to manage a P&L or manage something that was, you know, okay, this is just, keep this in the state it is. That's like the thing I definitely don't want to do, right? That was, that was a huge thing. But on the transitions that I had, I had maybe four or five transitions throughout my career. And what I really found out was I had, I, always, I often had two separate choices. Maybe one may be more money, this one may be more opportunity, and I look at each and go, I just don't know. And I, I would actually pray about it, and I'd say, God, somehow tell me which one to take. And he always came through. And when he came through, it was like, no, I definitely, I don't even want that one. That may even be more money. I don't, I don't want that one. Because my heart kind of melded to that new, that new position and that new where he wanted me to go. And, and that's why I really, really knew. And I can point back to, I had a job that offered to me from Fidelity. I had this one over here with a, a service provider for Stream International in the beginning. And it was like, I can take this one, or I can take that one. And you think, well, fidelity, that's, let's do that. And this one had more potential. I was working with Microsoft on this one over here, uh, you know, back in the days of Dawson Windows, and actually talking directly with Microsoft. Same thing for another company. I was going to get a, a, a position at a company in Rhode Island, uh, very high high-paying job, or I could get one slightly less paying over uh, in uh, Holliston, Massachusetts, and that one turned out, I, I, I said, which one? Take the lesser money one. I did that, and I found, you know, and then I was working with Sprint, and I'm working with Cisco, and doing work with those service providers. So I feel God took me in and kept me in the service provider loop, and not in the uh, individual company for my entire career, and he, and he just guided me through it. I'm not sure what you mean by take the less funny one. I don't, that doesn't register. I know, I know. Well, God's amazing, right? God, it didn't turn out like less money later. But. Yeah. <laughs> just more potential. I just wanted to mention one other thing: ego. Uh, that's that's a killer um, in business or in any other place, and and it's happened to me probably to some of you, where your, your ego gets in, in control and um, you don't see things that you need to be seen. And I, I, it's, 
it's something that, that uh, has a tremendous impact on people uh, if you don't keep that in control, right? Excellent. Great, great final word. So let's open it up to uh, the audience for questions, please. Um, I don't know, Ben, do we need to have a mic on the floor or we'll just, I'll try and restate the question yeah. so we have it on the recording. But uh, first of all, thank you, panelists. That was awesome. So, uh, yeah. I feel like we all got an MBA in career planning tonight in, you know, in an hour, so that's awesome. So let's, uh, questions, just please, if you want to direct your question to a particular panelist, please do so. Otherwise, uh, I'll try and steer them in a, in a good direction. So, Chris, you look like you're ready to go with the question. Well, not really, but just to get a general question to everyone. In terms of careers, are there things that you would just do differently? Not just the target that's in the career, question was, in your career, as you reflect back on it, are there things that you would do differently? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe give a, an example, if you <laughs> Without names and places to protect the innocent. <laughs> um, there's, there's so many I can even count. I mean, yeah, this, I, I made decisions wrong. I just talked about people, right? I made, I've made some, uh, and I made a very important bad decision on a person um, that uh, had some negative repercussion. Uh, my, my issue is, you know, you can make a mistake, that's, you know, it's fine, but how do you deal with it going forward? And will I, will I learn from that? And because I deviated out, out of, of the position of, you know, this per people having a certain culture or inclination to a certain behavior to um, identify that again. And so I did have some success in that, um, but you're, gonna, you're, you're going to, you know, you are going to make mistakes. It's how you handle it. And I said initially when, when we were starting that, I had trouble forgiving myself for making those mistakes. And they stayed with me, um, and they shouldn't. And, uh, that's one thing God's working on. I hope that helped at all. Any other examples to share with Chris? I, I'd let younger people screw up more. <laughs> Seriously, that's good. Um, I, 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 was, I, I don't like to fail myself, right? And so I don't like my team to. And there were times where uh, it took me a long time to learn that letting them screw up, as long as it's controlled and you can you know, manage the damage, um, is a really good thing for them, as opposed to trying to help them avoid the mistake. Sometimes it's better than a screw up. This, I think we can collect a whole book here of Galdaisms. So, <laughs> we've had some gems tonight, so thank you, Charles. So let, let younger people screw up more often. <laughs> Corey. Just, just not my kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just not your kids, right? They're perfect. Yeah. Given the high cost of college, I'll just rephrase the question for the purpose of the recording. So the question was, you know, how do you steer your children, I guess, towards a college education, if that's appropriate? Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. That's why I, I have raised an answer, because uh, Google has 
possibly connect with for, and we don't believe a college degree is is a um, is a marker for success any longer. What we believe is lifelong learning. You know, the ability to be creative. You know, EQ skills as well as IQ skills. But you know, college is about how are you learning? You're learning to learn. So, um, and you know, this is such an important topic for society as young people. My my son's girlfriend has is is uh, you know hundred thousand dollars in debt from my birth, um, and it's going to take her a lifetime to get out of that debt. Not to, for any other reason than she didn't have anybody to pay for it. For her. She's got a great job. I'm doing the math for her and helping her understand how long it's going to take for them to think about their finances. That's just not sustainable. So I think the world is in the middle of that pivot. Thankfully, as we move forward, that's just my personal opinion. I, I used to have a business law professor who would say the immediate and obvious answer is it depends. And so what do they want to do, right? In some places it's going to be really useful. In some places it's only useful as signaling, right? So we talk about, there's an economic concept of signaling. We talk about virtue signaling a lot. Like if I take this position and I'm really outraged on social media, you know how good I am as a person, right? Um, well, the same thing is true with college education. It, it, its primary purpose today is signaling. So if you graduate from a good college with a double major and a concentration, and it signals to a, f a future employer um, that you're somebody who does work hard, uh, who conforms, right? As much as we don't like that word, we like it in reality. Um, and so it signals to them things about the person. The actual education is debatable whether there's real value in it, especially given the price. I agree. Yep. Yeah, I agree too. So. <clears throat> I actually uh, identify with that a lot. Basically, so I have six years of college, but I have no degree. Um, I'm director of automation, intelligent automation, and a 300,000 employee company, and it's only a thousand director and above. So, I think the most important thing is to be in motion. When I found my first job in tech, I was in motion, right? And then I moved into that. And then because I was in motion, I got hired to my next job. And then because they saw me in my, it, it's, it's, the question is, am I willing, as a lawyer, am I willing to invest in this person? Am I gonna get a good return? Am I gonna get, is this person going to lead us where we wanna go as a company? And if they see that you're in motion, and that you have that high potential, then they'll hire you. Um, it, 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 there are a lot of companies still kind of, you know, it's more of an HR thing to say, college education, yeah, check it off, right? Or, you know, you put MIT on there, right? Um, you know, I have an MIT certificate from Sloan School of Business just for that purpose, right? It's an artificial <laughs> intelligence, right? So. You know, yes, on my, on my, I have that, I've taken the executive education, I've done that, but at the same time, once you get in the door, then they're going to say, okay, that's great, nobody discusses that, now what are you going to do? And some people, you know, they, you have college, and they show up and they're like, okay, you like me, that's great, but what are you going to do? What do you mean I'm going to do? No, the person who's in motion, knows that they're looking for that to move into that kind of a continual motion, even in the company, 
And that's why you get promoted to something else. So, so thank you, Matt. So you've been a tremendous encouragement to all the parents in the room who have kids in college for six years and won't seem to graduate. So. <laughs> Thanks for that. Next question. Yes, ma'am. Teresa, maybe you can handle that because I think we've really seen the, the role of the HR professional shift a lot and reflect mental health and things like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think, well, a couple of things. I guess where I was going to go was even digitally, right? So if you think about the role, I'm sure you experienced this yourself, uh, you know, how many applicants companies get and the role of the screening and the AI to pick, to pick out which ones are going to resonate. And keywords really matter, right? So Sure, you know this in the profession that you're in. If you're applying for a particular job, I tried to tell my sons when he was doing search, they got it customized for every single job. Make sure you're picking up the keywords so they get picked up in the algorithm, etc. Um, but I think that you're raising a really good point because when you look at what the skills of the future are, uh, EQ, um, making sure you have people who have empathy, these are the kind of softer skills that will help you to stand out, right? Everyone expects you to have. If you're applying for a particular job in computers, there are going to be a certain amount of skills, but that's table stakes. What is it that you've done beyond there? I always talk about my experience with my employee scores and what I do to bring those scores up. You know, um, I, I always on my LinkedIn profile um, ask people to comment about what it was like working on my team so that people have a really good sense of who I am and not just what I did. Does that help? Yeah. Great question. Yes. I don't want to bounce back to you guys always mentioned this whole family was like continually learning. I just graduated from college and Tracy just brought this up. The idea of like learning to learn. In high school we learned to be on test tests. In college we learned to the tests in our, our major. How do you shift your mind from learning what they tell you to learn to just learning to learn? Anybody want to tackle that? <laughs> Everybody's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you want to rephrase the question? Yeah, I'll just, so the question was, how do we go from high school learning to memorize to hopefully college learning to learn, and how do we carry that on in our, in our working lives? Yeah. So I can only tell you how I, I do it, right? So it's experiential, right? It's, it's, a different, it's different than reading a book, like a textbook, and then saying, okay, I've, I've got a wide swath of different things I've in my toolkit now, and ask the employer how to go ahead and, and apply it, right? So, I would say from a transition perspective, you know, I read a lot of books. I, uh, I, also, I also go into a lot of different areas, right? So like there might be process areas, there may be technology areas, there may be human resources kind of areas. 
I, I learned those, and I think I talked about it earlier, that basically go into one area, learn the adjacencies afterwards, move into adjacency, and keep building throughout your entire, your entire life. Um, the, the key is, though, is that it's experiential, which means if you're looking to go into whatever field or you're looking to go into whatever job, get involved in that job before you even have it, as much as you can, right? If you want to get into an internship, and I don't like unpaid internships, but, <laughs> you know, but if you want to get into an internship or you want to just, you, you want to get near that and actually start to experience it, and then, you know, that will keep going throughout your entire life. And it really is about experiencing it. And I would say one other thing too is really, for, my, for myself, is once I get in and I, I get an experience, I try to codify that into maybe a document so that that's what I learned. And then I go experience the other parts around it and I codify that into a document. So I'm not only continuing learning, but I'm also continually codifying my knowledge in so that I'm not just, you know, the knowledge is coming in and it's going out the door or there's, you know, because you know, it will dissipate over time. Yeah, no, that's great, Matt. And I, I would only add to that something we've talked about here, and you know, Ed brought it up, is get, get a mentor, more than one mentor, who can help you navigate your career, navigate the organization that you're working in. And I think, as you saw from the show of hands, you know, everybody on the panel was fortunate to have someone like that in their own lives that not only helped them as individuals, but also helped them you know, from a professional or from a career standpoint. What do you need to learn to kind of continue to progress in your career in the organization or, or outside of the organization? So, uh, a lifelong learning, for sure. I mean, it's uh, it's really important. It's it's, great. it's 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 a difference between learning, I think, and schooling. Yes. Right. Schooling is about regurgitating facts someone wants you to know, and they pick the facts. And I'm not good at that. Right. I wasn't a good student. I was at school to meet girls. Uh, but, when, but, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm a learner, right? I love to learn. I'm fascinated by all kinds of topics. Can so, that last subject? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I met my wife at school. <laughs> but the, at which point school became useless to me. <laughs> and, and, and so, but, but, you know, tee up almost any topic to me and I'm interested in it. So I think it may be a divorcing that schooling process yeah. you've been through and actually being intellectual, curious about things, um, and then applicable, applicable, practical things too. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I sit on the board of my business school alma mater, and, and you know, probably some of other people are involved as well. And, and it, you know, used to be when you become an alumnus of your school, that means the school can ask you for money. <laughs> That's sort of what it really means to be alumni. Well, now, you know, as we've sort of seen, the school recognizes that, yeah, I might graduate you after a two-year master's program or four-year undergrad program or whatever, but I now have an obligation and an opportunity as a school to maintain the relationships with my alumni and provide them with, you know, opportunities for lifelong learning all the way along because everything you learn at school the half-life of that knowledge is probably maybe five or ten years at the most if you're lucky. If you learn the ability to learn, you know, that's going to stay with you through your whole life. So um, I think 
you know, people are starting to realize that that's really what's important and, and the, the knowledge that you gain about how to learn and continue to learn is, is really valuable. I think we have time for a couple more questions out in the audience. Yes, ma'am, the front. Um, you all talked about your relationship with God and you talk to him, you pray with him, you meditate. Um, and I think it was Charles who said, when you left work, you had so much more time to do that. And I'm just curious, in the middle of the chaos of work, what your, not routine is, but how you make that a prayer to pray and ask for answers. <laughs> I'll, I'm not the master on this by any stretch of the imagination. The time when I was doing that was actually a time when I was—I knew I was leaving the job I was in, and it was—I was—I was having to finish a job, and so I wasn't getting any new things to do, and so I had time on my hands. It happened to be a time, right? I don't—my theology doesn't allow for too many. It happened to be having a time where I could do that. But my normal process is I teach—I teach Sunday school. Um, and so I do Bible study every morning for a good hour, hour and a half, just to prepare my lesson. Um, and then what I try, I, and I kind of pray through the day, but I've, I've, I used to be really good at, I had an hour of prayer time, I'm not good at that at all anymore. What I am relatively good at is blocking a few hours um, on, a, on a Friday afternoon or on a Saturday and just spending time uh, praying, meditating, thinking and talking to God. I do think God talks to us more through the Bible I think we talk to him more through prayer, but I think he works in both. Okay, Steve? Yeah, so you talked um, a lot about the mindset of preparing for transition. Uh, I strange to jokes on uh, Friday, so I'm two days too late for that. <laughs> 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 but I was curious if you had like, some great advice or thoughts on the mindset for a period after when you sort of fresh. So Steve's question, I think, was, you know, if you have made a change in a job, how do you kind of get into the mindset of really approaching that new job? Dale, maybe you can talk how you did that as you joined. Yeah, uh, so Gary. Um, for me personally, the last organization I went to is it's really being willing to open your eyes to see who are all the folks you're going to be working with. And then some of the major stakeholders that you'll be working with I proactively set up one-on-ones with people that I've never met, and I try to do that depending on, you know, maybe it's weekly, maybe it's um, every couple of weeks, just so that you can, for me, it helps force me to get involved and meet people and discuss their job. You're trying to figure out the organization and how you move within it, and I think the best way to do that is to immerse yourself with the folks that you'll be working with. Any of the other panelists want to comment? Teresa, you? Yeah, no, I did the same. Yeah. Um, absolutely, I was just reflecting on how many, how many one-on-ones I had in my last job. I'm just meeting everybody and just taking notes and trying to make sure you stay connected. I think that's great advice. Yeah. Yeah, and I would just say, so on a, on a regular basis, we all see each other as kind of a role-to-role, -role, right? That might be the VP of something, this may be the director, this may be a tech that I'm working with. A lot of that times, that's not even really relevant, right? There's the stakeholder side, yes, the VP of whatever, but there's a person-to-person -person relationship, 
right? And we all tend to focus on titles, and we all tend to focus on, you know, this person's role versus my role, and there's those tensions that build up and such, but at the end of the day, it's a person talking to a person. And if you see everybody around you as a person, yes, they all have their roles and they all have their expectations prior to their roles, but if you see them all as people, and then it really eases the transition. I know there's like that 90 day transition, you know, three phases, what are you gonna do within 90 days type of thing. But at the same time, those relationships, whatever you build within that first 90 days, from a relationship perspective, will either propel you to help the rest of the organization, or if people see that this guy's just gonna go ahead and talk on a roll-to-roll basis, they'll be like, all right, I know who that guy is. He's, the He's basically just business guy, right? So it definitely can help to go ahead and really think on a person-to-person basis versus with the roles dropped at the same time as the role base. I'd agree with everything people said. I'd also add into it, um, we're all good at some things and not good at other things. And at some point, you figure out what you're not good at. And if you're in one company, you kind of figured out who's going to backfill for the things you're not good at. If you've just walked in a new company, fit company, figuring out who those people are who have the things you're missing and getting close to them so you can trust them and rely on them becomes pretty important. Great, I saw a couple more hands over here. Yes, ma'am. I'm wondering what the, if there's any purposeful um, effort going into increasing diversity in the workplace. The question was any purposeful effort in creating or Anything driving diversity. increasing diversity in the workplace? Okay. I'm having a start. Uh, I, I ran the diversity committee at my last company, and you, know, you look at representation numbers and say, you know, what is the representation market? What's our representation? Yeah, I just add to that the what we talked about at the beginning around the increasing importance of creativity and, and collaboration and, and sort of the ability to solve problems with other people. And I think in my experience, you're going to get the best answers if you have a group of people that are coming from very diverse backgrounds and, and diverse schools of thought. And I had the privilege of you know, working for the last decade in a global organization where I had team members from Asia and Australia and most of my team in London and, and some Yanks. 
And everybody thought different on that team, and it was great because we really came up with a global answer, not a made in America answer. And, and as a result, you know, it really worked well. And, and I think that's real where organizations need to do is recognize that if you want to get the best answer, you probably got to have one that's a diverse group of people and, and not a, uh, you know, a bunch of people that are all the same sitting in a room and making up the answer. I, I agree with that. Um, but I'll say something provocative. Uh, I think no. that I'll really <laughs> Ben knew what he was getting into when he invited me. I don't know. Um, I think a lot is being sorry. Um, I think a lot is being done. Um, I think corporations are uniquely ill-suited to do it, and I think a lot of what they've done is actually counterproductive in getting a real valuing an individual for who they are and making them part of the organization is something the church is very well equipped to do. I think corporations are not. I, I think they've made a hash of it. And I, and I couldn't say that three years ago, and I'm one of the guys making the hash of it, right? Okay, yes, sir. Um, so I took a safe job when I first got out of school, and that was 32 years ago. So I worked for the Department of Defense, and then I did research for uh, 17 years, and then I decided I needed to do something else. And someone said that they needed someone in management leadership, and it was related to technology. And I said, I don't care, I'll just do it, I don't know anything about it. Fifteen years later, I've you know got promoted, uh, done that sort of thing. Got a program officer job. I said, "Hey, do you need help?" And I pitched in. But I'm coming up on uh, retirement from uh, government in about 18 months, and so um, it's trying to figure out: should I be doing something similar to what I'm doing, or something completely different? So I've had success in both areas. But there's white uh, white pages in front of me, and it's not clear which way to choose. And obviously, I'll be praying throughout the process. But just your thoughts on more of the same, something very different, or the adjacency? What would you recommend? First, I'd like to know why you look so much younger than I. Do. <laughs> you look too young for all this. I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. I think certainly for prayer. But what is it you like doing? Yeah. Actually, what I would say is read Halftime. It's a great book on this. It's by Bob Buford. And for those of you who don't know it, he made like a billion dollars in television down in Texas um, and got to the point in his late 40s and he was like, is this all there is? Um, and he loved television. So he wasn't, it wasn't that he was dissatisfied, but is this all I'm supposed to do? And he talked about this paradigm where there's the first part of our lives where we're struggling for success. And then there's a, a halftime where we pause and look at it, and now we're focused on significance. What can we do for others? I think that's why when Ben talked about, we're also happy to get on a panel and talk, because we, we're happy to invest in other people. Because it comes a point in your career where it's not about success anymore. It's not not about success, but that's not the primary driver. And so what is it that you can do um, that invest in other people, whether it's mentoring uh, or you know, ministry work or nonprofit work or some second career, whatever it is. What is it that is going to be a contribution to the kingdom? Because that's what I'd line up with what's significant. Great answer. One more question and then I'll turn it back to Ben. Come on, there's got to be one hard question out there for somebody. 
Yes. So this came up in different ways through the conversation. In many cases, we find ourselves engaged in work. We come to Christ and realize God's intending to work in our lives, oftentimes through our activities as an employee or manager. And I was wondering if anyone would like to share with me more than one. Uh, at times when you knew that God was working through you, Anybody want to take that one? I asked for a hard question, so. <laughs> I have seen it all throughout my career. Um, and you know, it's not easy to have that intersection between faith and work when you work for a global organization that is asking you to be careful about what you say, not offend certain groups, etc. And, uh, you know, um, it's very, very difficult. But, but for me, I would ask God every day, you know, put somebody in my life today, Lord, that you want need to talk to and, and I, that I can glorify you. And it's amazing how just even to this day throughout all of my networking conversations, I've talked to uh, just different people who have, have said to me, you know, I remember when we were at that business lunch and you leaned across and said, you want to tell us, aren't you? <laughs> You're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah, I just tell. We end up having these amazing conversations about God. So I think you have to be careful in the workplace. There's so many ways to show empathy and to live like Christ where people will notice that you're different and that you're standing apart because you treat people the way Christ is, you know, as, as Christ is sanctifying you. You just stand out in, in a dark place. I remember several examples where I had an opportunity to talk to people as I, as I moved up the ladder. And uh, you, you find those opportunities. Um, some, if, they, if they feel comfortable with you, then they'll start saying some things that signal that um, you know, they're, they're wrestling and they don't have answers. And then there's a way to get in there and start talking about, about God and, and uh, taking, taking it deeper. And it's there. If you, have to be, you do have to be careful. Um, but I, I remember and, and um, um, it, it was it was it was me it was very mean. it was meaningful and and they would sometimes like you said they they bring um, bring it up at some other time so there are opportunities. I say that thing I just add to that is I've never been turned down by this one question when someone tells me about the sickness in their family or something they're facing. I say I'm a person of faith. Would you mind if I pray for you? What's your son's name? What's your uncle's name? There's, there's not been one time somebody reported me to HR, was offended <laughs> over it. They just said, you know, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Great. Well, listen, thank you very much for uh, all of the great questions. And let's give another uh, appreciation to our value of a conversation. I, I don't think we have to neatly package things. I think if you just have a conversation and you let it flow and you have smart people in the room, you'll pick up what you need from it. And uh, my favorite thing is after these kind of conversations is to hear kind of the stories and feedback of how different people resonate with different voices on the panel and how they get something out of it. So here's my only encouragement to you as uh, we wrap up the evening and we're currently dismissed is 
take some time for conversation amongst yourself and with the panelists and find ways to connect here and after and carry on the conversation because that's really what this is about. Our, our singular goal is not to have a panel discussion and to end it, but it is to create a place where relationships and conversations can, can continue. So thank you, everybody. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll go. Father, our work is your work. We believe that our, our careers are callings and that whatever it is that we do, we can do it well because we do it for you. So Father, I pray uh, that the conversation tonight would, um, would rest deep in our hearts and our lives. It would provide answers, it would provide direction. And Father, in some cases, it would provoke even deeper questions that we would need to wrestle with. Thank you for this opportunity for all of those who participated in the work you're doing. In Jesus' name.